at some point Putin will die or become incapacitated or possibly be overthrown. And what might Russia look like then? My strong suspicion is that almost whoever takes over will want to end uh, what Putin has been doing and try to return to the uh, global community. There's one person with the power to end the war in Ukraine in an instant. That's Russian President Vladimir Putin. In these days, you are fighting for our people in Donbass, for the security of our motherland, Russia. The 9th of May 1945 has forever been written into world history as the triumph of our united Soviet people. That was Putin speaking to the Russian people for Russia Victory Day, a holiday commemorating the Soviet Union's defeat of Nazi Germany in 1945. Even more eyes are on Putin as Western officials wonder if today will mark a turning point in the war. We'll start the conversation with the latest there. Then we'll get into a story fewer people may know, the source of Putin's enormous wealth and the story behind his unusual rise to power. We'll be back with more in just a moment. I'm Jonquilyn Hill, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways. In a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is committed to helping you in times of stress with customized online therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com 1A and see if it helps life feel a little bit easier. Let's jump back into the conversation. Joining us is Angela Stint. She's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. She served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia on the National Intelligence Council from 2004 to 2006. She's also author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. Angela, welcome. Great to be on your show. Also with us is Josh Meyer. He's a domestic security correspondent for USA Today. Josh, it's great to have you back. Great to have me. Thanks, John Quillen. Angela, a lot of Americans don't think of May 9th as a holiday, but what's today's significance for Russians? So May the 9th really is the most important secular holiday in kind of post-Soviet Russia. Uh, it's more important now than it was for much of the Soviet period. It's the kind of one moment of glory uh, when the Russians can look back to their past and they can say, we defeated the Nazis. Uh, and they increasingly forget to uh, mention that they did this with the help of the United States and Great Britain. And Putin has really instrumentalized this holiday. Uh, and he has his own very revisionist view of history, which again is that the Soviet Union did this all on its own. And of course now, by painting the Ukrainians as Nazis, as he has, he's mm -hmm. likening what the Russians are doing in Ukraine today to what they did to defeat the Germans in 1945. So, Angela, we played a little bit of that speech uh, that Putin gave today where he re-emphasized that false claim that the West left him no choice but to invade Ukraine. How successful has Putin been in pushing that narrative inside of Russia? 
so far he's been really quite successful and we heard again from him today that the reason was that NATO and the Nazis in Ukraine were about to attack Russia, take back Crimea. And polling shows in Russia that a majority of people really believe that the source of the war is, are the actions of the United States and its quote-unquote puppet Ukraine. Um, uh, and Russians, most Russians don't have access to alternative sources of information, so they just watch state-run television. And that's what they believe. And the Russians that don't believe that and have access to other information and oppose the war, many of those people have left already. Mm. So, so, Josh, I want to stick to this speech a little bit. What were the other big takeaways from the speech today? You know, I think one of the big takeaways, uh, John Quillen, is, is what he didn't say, uh, as opposed to what he did say, and also where he held the speech. Kremlin watchers, of course, have been dissecting this, um, you know, in real time since he held it. And usually uh, he would hold the speech, they say, um, the Victory Day speech, um, he would hold it at uh, Independence Square. Uh, I think it, that's where it is. Instead, he held it at Red Square, which is much more, and it was much more of a sermon than a policy speech. He didn't he didn't say that they have uh, won the fight. He basically stuck to some talking points, praising a generation of Soviet men and women who crushed the Nazis, urging Russians to try to live up to their memory, invoking the victory as an almost mystical bond holding the nation together. But he did acknowledge the human costs of war, and he did not declare war um, and ratchet up the stakes in the current conflict in Ukraine. So people think that that's very significant, that he didn't really go all out. Um, and, and claim victory or say that he's going to ratchet up uh, his attacks. Angela, there's was a lot of speculation leading up to today that Putin would formally declare war on Ukraine. He hasn't done that so far. Why would that be so pivotal for this conflict? Well, because if he declares a formal war on Ukraine, then he, in fact, can do mass mobilization. He can put the Russian economy on a wartime footing. He can declare martial law. In other words, he can get all the resources he needs to prosecute this war. Uh, but the problem is um, that... And I've been watching in the past couple of days debates by some of their TV personalities who are ex-military or current military. They really don't have the resources for a general mobilization. Uh, their equipment isn't doing very well. And I think they're wary of calling up too many people because then they've already had many body bags coming back. By some estimates, 20,000 Russian soldiers have already been killed. Then you're going to have more casualties coming back. And then this kind of support for the more the war might wane. Uh, so yes, people were speculating that he was going to do it. Uh, but at the moment, we're really at the, kind of at a stalemate here uh, with the Russians sort of trying to push to take over the whole of the Donbass, the Ukrainians fighting back very valiantly with help from, from NATO countries. And uh, Putin doesn't seem to be willing to at least formally escalate that um, aspect of the war at the moment. Josh, you've done extensive reporting into Putin's wealth. Do we know how much money he actually has? Um, well, that's a very good question. Thanks, John Quillen. Um I, I did. I actually did a, it was a um, 7,000 word story plus three uh, sidebar stories. So I spent months trying to figure this out. Um, I talked to dozens of people, CIA, former FBI people that, um, you know, investigated him uh, on the ground in Russia and in Eurasia um, and, and from remote locations. 
And, and the the fact of the matter is nobody really knows how much he's worth. I mean, the estimates range from, you know, there was a $40 billion estimate from the CIA about 10 years ago uh, up to, they. I think they ratcheted that up to $70 billion. Um, uh, Bill Browder, who is one of the most knowledgeable people about Russia as a former financier there, says it's $200 billion. Uh, and that was back in, two, in 2017. But the, the problem is nobody really knows. A lot of this is very opaque. It's held offshore. Uh, through friends and family, uh, through um, cutouts and shell companies. Uh, so one would hope that the CIA in particular and the Treasury Department have a good handle on this, but uh, people that I've talked to say that they really don't. It's really hard to tell. Uh, that's just so much money. $200 billion is just – it's hard for me to wrap my head even around. Where is Putin getting this money from? Well, I mean, so one of the big issues here is it's hard to separate Putin's wealth from the wealth of the country. Um, and that really gets into, uh, you know, how he's amassed his fortune, the people that he's uh, used to help him do that. He's created billionaires out of fellow spies from the KGB that served with him, associates from his hometown of St. Petersburg who helped him along the way. And a lot of the money is not only held offshore, but it's also been um, invested in the institutions of Russia. For instance, when he wanted to have a big ceremony in St. Petersburg, his hometown years ago, he basically ordered that billion or hundreds of millions at least be spent, you know, fixing up a palace that was there, uh, getting uh, yachts and so forth. So once that's done, you know, those basically are at his disposal. So, but can you say that they're his wealth or the wealth of the country? It's hard to tell. Um, but he's, you know, um, as our story said, um, he, he set out to do a, kind of a four-step process in terms of amassing his wealth. And I can go into that, too. I just didn't want to talk too long here. But he started out small in St. Petersburg. Uh, the short version is he got bigger and bigger uh, as he got to Moscow, he, where he worked at the Kremlin as a functionary uh, helping uh, in, in the sort of mad dash from communism to capitalism. Uh, with with everything that the Kremlin owns, um, you know, making money off uh, the sale of that and the use of that. Uh, and then once he became the president of Russia, he basically turned the tables on the oligarchs who had already become billionaires and said, if you don't work for me and do anything I say, including giving me a cut of what you're making, I'm going to take all your assets away and throw you in prison. And to show people that he was serious, he did that to the richest man in Russia, uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, in 2003. He basically took him off his private jet in Siberia, threw him in prison, and he uh, stayed there for 10 years. And he basically lost all the assets of his uh, oil company, Yukos, which at the time was one of the biggest in Russia. So it sounds like the way he amassed his wealth was really coupled with his career in politics. Angela... Putin's path to the presidency was not traditional. How did his career in politics get its start? So Putin started off as a mid-level KGB agent. He'd always wanted to be a KGB agent. He tried to join when he was a teenager, and they told him to go away, get a degree, and come back. So there he was uh, in Dresden in East Germany in a provincial city uh, between 1985 and 1990. Uh, he was a case officer, as he said in an interview uh, in 2000, working with people and with documents. And he thought that was going to be his career. Um, and then, uh, of course, the Berlin Wall came down. 
and he had to leave in a rather humiliating way. He had to leave East Germany because East Germany didn't exist anymore. Uh, and the KGB, after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, was divided into two new intelligence organizations. So anyway, in 1992, uh, he got lucky because his former law professor, uh, a man called Anatoly Sobchak, became the mayor of St. Petersburg after the Soviet collapse. Uh, Putin's hometown. And he was the deputy mayor for foreign economic contacts. So this is where he started to get to know all of these foreign uh, economic business people and to start accumulating his money with a group of friends. Uh, they had a collective, uh, it was called, they had uh, um, their weekend homes on a lake um, outside, outside St. Petersburg. So he did rather well as deputy economic mayor. And then Unfortunately for him, in 1996, there was an election uh, in St. Petersburg and his candidate, the mayor, Sobchak, was defeated in what was a, quite a dirty election campaign. And obviously the conclusions that Putin drew from that were, A, it's not really a very good idea to have an election if you can't know who's going to win, and B, politics is dirty. Um, and then he continued to have a good fortune because after he lost his job um, as deputy mayor because the other candidate won, he was then brought to Moscow uh, by a man called Alexei Kudrin, who later on became a finance minister, rather successful finance minister. And Putin was given various jobs um, in Moscow. And he landed up uh, being then the head of the FSB, which was the domestic intelligence service. Um, and it was then that Boris Yeltsin was ailing and his family was looking for someone to take over. And they tried six different prime ministers. And then they put Putin, they made him prime minister in September of 1999 uh, to try him out. Um, and at that point, he looked to be competent, loyal, uh, he didn't have, uh, you know, a personality that stood up. He was kind of a gray man. And they decided that he was the person that they would choose to take over from Yeltsin because he promised the family that none of them would be prosecuted. They could keep all the money they'd made. Mm -hmm. No one would go to jail. Uh, and in fact, he kept his promise to the Yeltsin family. And that's why they decided in December of 1999 uh, that Yeltsin was going to re retire a little early because his health was so bad and that Putin was going to take over. Oh, wow. So we've looked at young Putin and we see Putin now. What parallels are there between the approach taken by young Putin vying for power and him now, especially as we look at the war in Ukraine? Angela? Um, well, so, I mean, you know, when he first, when he first came to power, um, he, you know, we didn't know very much about him. In fact, when he first became president, uh, one of the people working on the National Security Council said, you know, he's either a spook, an economic reformer, or an empty suit. And in the beginning, the empty suit was kind of the one that was prevailing. Now, of course, we know that he certainly isn't an empty suit. I think, um... You know, the way that he is operating and launching the war in Ukraine, that has developed over time. Uh, in the in the very couple of first couple of years of his presidency, he really reached out to the West. 
Uh, he appeared as if he wanted to cooperate to be, for Russia to be integrated in the global economy. Uh, Russia was helpful to the United States after the uh, attack on the Twin Towers uh, in the first phase of the war in Afghanistan. You know, Putin came to the United States. He visited President George W. Bush at his ranch. So that was really quite a different Putin that we saw. But what's happened as time has gone on, uh, you know, grievances have come out. He feels the West uh, didn't treat Russia or him with the respect it deserved. Uh, he believes that Russia, it is his goal now to restore essentially parts of the Russian Empire to recreate a Slavic state with Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia in it. And so as time has gone on, um, his policies have become more, more aggressive. His grievances have grown and his kind of his own very peculiar view of history, and particularly the idea that the Ukrainians aren't a separate nation or state, um, has, has intensified to what we see now. Colin tweeted, what's the source of Putin's wealth? Why hasn't anyone stated the obvious answer? Theft. Josh, one former State Department official told you that Putin is running his financial affairs like, quote, the biggest organized crime boss on the face of the earth. What does that mean? Well, um, that's a good question, Jonquilin. I think one, before I answer that, I just wanted to return to the Chechnya bombings for one, uh, the apartment bombings, just very briefly. Mm -hmm. I think what that shows is, uh, even if it hasn't been conclusively proven that, that Putin was behind it, I think what it shows, though, is that he had the support uh, all along of what's called the Siloviki, which is the strongman, the hidden behind-the-scenes puppet masters, first of the KGB, then of the FSB and the other security, police, and intelligence agencies. And his rise from a deputy mayor, um, even his job, getting uh, the job as the deputy mayor in St. Petersburg, uh, and then going to Moscow, and then rising to, to prime minister, uh, and then president, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he did have the support of these state security agencies all along. And that's given him a power base uh, that he's used uh, extensively throughout throughout um, his rise to power and to to wealth, um, and you know when David Asher told me that he operates like a crime boss, um, I think one of the reasons is because um, when he became the president of the uh, of Russia and he told the oligarchs, he brought all of them, uh, twenty one of them, I think, the, of the biggest ones, uh, to the Kremlin. And he said, you know, things have changed. Uh, you guys work for me now, and um, if you don't. Uh, if you don't basically let me control the wealth that you control. Um, and again, these oligarchs basically controlled different sectors of the Russian economy as it went from communism to capitalism. So they weren't just very wealthy. They were very, very powerful. And Putin said, you know, that things have changed. You work for me now. And if you don't, I'm going to basically take your, your, your companies and your wealth and even your freedom um, Bill Browder said that basically the deal was, and this is a quote that we have in the story, you give me 50% of your wealth and I'll let you keep the other 50%. If you don't, um, I'm going to take 100% of your wealth and throw you in jail. And basically, you know, that's kind of the mob boss um, mentality that, that people are talking about. Um, and, you know, other people have said the same thing, uh, that, that uh, basically by helping his close circle of friends and family become rich by awarding them government contracts, ownership in businesses. He gets a kickback of all of those. He gets a stake in the com companies. Um, and basically, instead of soldiers and capos like they have in the mafia, in this case, he's got his billionaire oligarchs that he's helped create. 
and they're essentially in perpetual debt to him, and they'll do whatever he wants them to do, um, and he'll take a cut of what they make as a profit. Josh, you've said that Putin's wealth can't be separated from Russia's wealth. How? What? What role does that play in Putin's incentive to stay in office? You know, that's that that's one of the, I guess, a billion dollar question. Um, there was a point in 2008. Remember, he had to be ter- he was term limited out. Uh, according to the Russian Constitution, you could only serve two four year terms. And so he took over at the beginning of 2000. Um, and so by 2008, he essentially handed over the presidency to Dmitry Med- Medvedev, who was kind of a puppet uh, proxy of his. Uh, but there was a question about whether he was going to step step away and enjoy the riches. By then, there was the billion-dollar palace that his uh, friend, friendly oligarchs had built for him on the Black Sea, um, and that he was going to step away and enjoy the fruits of, of all of his hard work. Uh, but, you know, he I think he began to realize that he, he couldn't separate um, – um, himself as the president and his access to the to wealth uh, from from him as a private individual, and I think he was concerned that if he ever left power, not only would he not uh, be able to you know have access to all of this wealth, but he also could face criminal charges for some of the things that he did in Chechnya, uh, you know, of course now in Ukraine, but also um, you know financial crimes, corruption, and so forth. So he. I think he wants to remain in power because he's afraid that, you know, if he loses that power, he loses immunity from prosecution. He won't have access to the billions of dollars that's being held for him uh, by oligarchs and so forth, and that he would basically be very vulnerable. So I think that's one of the reasons he wants to stay in power. We're discussing President Vladimir Putin and the source of his considerable wealth. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or... Just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get back to our conversation on President Vladimir Putin and the source of his wealth. Let's listen to a question we got from Jackie in New Hampshire. If the West is so opposed to Putin and his cronies, why do we not have an open banking and trust system that will fully expose the theft and graft from these people and allow their citizens to see what's being done with their money. I think if we had an open banking and trust system, these guys would be kicked out of power by their own people instead of having us get involved. Jackie, thanks for leaving us that message. Josh, what's your response to Jackie's suggestion? Uh, well, no, that's a great observation. Um, I think that you know people have known about this problem for decades. The problem uh, with that is that there are so many people that are enmeshed in the system of uh, enabling and supporting kleptocrats around the world, not just Putin, but people in many, many other countries, Nigeria, um, Panama, I mean, you name it. Um, that, uh, you know, it's it's hard to sort of shake loose that system. So you have lawyers, you have bankers, you have real estate agents, you have these um, concentric rings of enablers that are helping these people hide their wealth. And it's very um, beneficial to uh, some economies to do that. I mean, not just companies, uh, excuse me, countries in the Caribbean uh, and elsewhere, but even London, um, you know, has basically billions and billions of dollars in real estate wealth from some of these oligarchs. Uh, the United States has very opaque laws that enable almost anybody to create an offshore company uh, or a company in the United States where the beneficial ownership, the actual owners of the company are hidden. So um, it's easier said than done to do that. 
Um, and if you really want to understand how that system works, um, just Google Panama Papers or Pandora Papers or some of these other leaks, mm -hmm. because those have shown, um, you know, that in Putin's case, for instance, you know, two billion dollars uh, have gone through the accounts uh, held by one of his childhood friends, a, a classical cellist named Sergei Roldugin. Um, so that just shows that if you know if there weren't these leaks uh, from secret bank accounts, we might never know where the money's going, how much is flowing through it, and so forth. But 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 you know, making the system transparent um, would would be kind of an, uh, a seismic shift in the in the way that the U.S. and other countries approach financial secrecy. Russ emails, the goalposts have moved. Putin cannot end the war now unless he not only ceases hostilities, but withdraws his, so, withdraws his forces from all Ukrainian territory, including Crimea. Even a promise to do so will not be sufficient. He cannot do this and survive. So unless he resorts to tactical nukes, it's going to be a long war. Angela, what are your thoughts on Russ's email? <laughs> well... So, you know, Russia could, I mean, if you listen to what Putin said today, it's possible that if Russia, you know, conquers the entire Donbass region, which they haven't succeeded in doing that yet, and possibly what they want to do is to take Odessa, uh, which of course would be disastrous for the rest of Ukraine, because then it would be completely cut off from the Black Sea and wouldn't be economically viable. Uh, but let's say that Russia at least were able to take the entire Donbass, uh, maybe put aside Odessa. Putin could declare victory um, and uh, or even maybe incorporate the Donbass into Russia. Again, we heard rumors that that was going to be announced today, but clearly it wasn't. He could declare victory and go home since he said from the beginning that, you know, the initial aim was to, to you know, fight and defeat the quote unquote Ukrainian Nazis who were trying to take back the Donbass. So it's possible. I'm a little bit skeptical about that because at other times his war aims are much broader um, and they still include taking Kiev, which of course they weren't unable to do uh, when they first launched the war. So it is possible that he could use a tactical nuclear weapon. Um, he would then be rupturing, uh, you know, the uh, agreement that has been there since 1949, since the Soviet Union first ex exploded successfully its atomic weapon. Um, and that is mutually assured, assured destruction, the idea that if I use a nuclear weapon, um, you would use one back on me and therefore I'm not going to do it. This would be a tactical nuclear weapon. It wouldn't be one that would threaten the United States. But that's that would be so escalatory uh, and it's never been done before. And NATO would have a kinetic response to that. We don't know what it is for obvious reasons. No one in the U.S. or any other NATO country is spelling it out. But there would be a response to that. And that would therefore make it more difficult for Russia to achieve these war aims. So I think um, I'm still inclined to believe that he's not going to do that, but I can't be 100% sure, no, nor can anybody else, uh, because the rhetoric certainly has been escalatory. And Putin has reminded us since the war began that, you know, Russia does have nuclear weapons and Russian pundits are, are talking about the dangers of nuclear war. And that's what they're telling the Russian population. Josh, one of the things you've explored in your reporting is how ruthless Putin can be when it comes to the people digging into his finances what are some of the things Putin has been accused of doing to the people who have tried to call him out for these shady dealings? Um, well, thank, thanks for the question. Yes. Um, I mean, I did a whole separate story on this. Um, I mean, there's a long list of people that have been poisoned, that have been shot and killed, that have been jailed. 
that have been forced into exile. Um, people have fallen out of windows, um, you know, when actually they didn't fall out of windows. Um, and so, yes, this is a history that goes all the way back to Putin's rise to power in St. Petersburg, where people that have questioned or even just dug into uh, the sources of his finances um, and the source of his wealth uh, have been silenced. I mean, you have, um, you know, some of the most prominent ones, of course, Alexei Navalny, who's still in prison now, was a very prominent um, uh, opposition figure, but he was also a good investigative uh, reporter. He has he, he had a, uh, n- not reporter in the traditional sense, but he had a nonprofit uh, anti-corruption foundation, and they've done excellent work basically, uh, you know, outlining uh, the ways Putin has gotten wealthy. Uh, he did a big documentary uh, and an accompanying report on that uh, right after he was put in prison. They, they released it. Uh, you know, he was poisoned, almost killed. Now he's been arrested. Boris Nemtsov did the same thing. He mm-hmm. was uh, lobbying for an investigation into Putin corruption. Uh, he was basically, um, I mean, he was shot and killed uh, four shots to the back when he was walking with his girlfriend uh, right near the Kremlin. Alexander Litvinenko, former KGB officer turned whistleblower, was poisoned, of course, with radioactive polonium-210 in mm-hmm. Russia. Everybody knows about that. Um, Sergei Magnitsky, who uh, was the namesake for the Magnitsky Act, which is, right. you know, Magnitsky was uh, blowing the whistle. Um, he found $230 million in fraud and corruption um, uh, based on his uh, Bill Browder's uh, investments in Russia. Uh, when he went to the authorities uh, to, to report this, he was put in jail, beaten to death uh, in prison. Um, I mean, there's just all sorts of people. Marina Salier, who was one of the original... Uh, St. Petersburg uh, municipal officials who was investigating Putin's corruption way back then uh, basically dropped out of sight, uh, went into hiding for 10 years uh, because she feared for her life. She said she was threatened. And then later she died of a heart attack. And and some friends and family believe that that was suspicious, too. That was back in 2012, I believe. So, um, you know, there's just a lot of people and, and that's just a small fraction of them that have been. Um, you know, as the story said, silenced by poison bullets in jail um, because they've tried to figure out and blow the whistle on how much money Putin has. Josh, are you at all worried for your own well-being after doing this reporting? Um, you know, that that's, that is a good question. And, you know, this is one of the few occasions, I mean, I've traveled to a lot of foreign countries where uh, I have been uh, concerned. I've, I, somebody tried to kidnap me. Or a group of people tried to kidnap me twice, once in Pakistan, what? once in Saudi Arabia, but um, for for various stories. But but this it does concern me. I think what I'm more concerned about um, is uh, hacking into my computers and my phone, you know, my phone and things like that. I'm I'm pretty sure that that that's probably happened. But um, I, I think that unless I travel to, to Russia or uh, some of the friendly satellite countries around it, hopefully I'll, um, I'll be okay. But there have been instances where people in the United States who have reported on this or have who are about to meet with the FBI to talk about Putin uh, have been killed. So, um, you know, there are there are concerns about that. But, um, you know, I, I'm I'm trying to keep my head down. I'm not too worried about it. So, wow, <laughs> Josh, wow. Um, I, I want to go to a message we got from a listener. We got this message from Claudia who said, I haven't heard or read anything about what would happen if Putin were ever removed from power. I haven't seen anything about his grooming as successor or any mention about anyone even being close to him in the power structure that is Russia. Although it seems he intends to be head of Russia for life, 
he isn't immortal. What happens when he finally goes? Angela, can you answer that? You know, it depends how he goes. So, so far, he has not designated a successor. He's not done what Yeltsin did, uh, which was to choose someone and hand power to them. Um, I guess because he doesn't want to be a lame duck. Um, so, you know, what are the scenarios? He can remain in office constitutionally till 2036. Uh, if he wanted to, I'm sure he could remain beyond that. There are a lot of rumors about his health uh, since the war broke out. Um, but, you know, uh, providing his health isn't as bad as some people say. He could remain in office for a long time. Now, what would happen if he died in office? Um, we, since we don't know that there's any kind of plan there, I mean, normally the prime minister then would take over for a few weeks and there'd be another election. Um, but there could be a power struggle. So you could get a lot of instability um, were he to die in office, um, with, as there has been in Soviet and Russian history before, um, where, where there's never been um, a regular succession mechanism in the entire you know, <laughs> thousand years of Russian history. Uh, people either died or they were removed by, by it, either in a revolution or by a palace coup. Angela Stint is a senior non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution and a former national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia. Josh Meyer is a domestic security correspondent for USA Today. And his story, A Port City, A Steel Cage, A Palace, is out now. Thanks to you both. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes from you from WMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jonathan Hill. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.